No, you can't segue off of something I'm cutting out of the show. That's not fair. I know. I wasn't. I wasn't segueing. I was just. This is just a fact. <laughs> okay. You're, you can't keep it. Right. Uh, see, now I'll just say a bunch of cancelable takes like. Uh, uh, Type systems are the thought police that force us into a conformant <laughs> monoculture and suffocate diversity. Uh, the last good programming language was Perl. Uh, I, I'd actually agree with that. That's not bad. <laughs> and I would also, I would say not just Perl, but Perl and TCL. The, the two of them kind of mm-hmm. also rans of the early internet era. Both of them very good programming languages that, uh, that are now just punchlines to jokes. And yes, I say TCL. I don't say tickle. So you don't say tickle. No, I don't say tickle. I say mm. TCL. Yeah, I never did any Perl. You never, you never did any Perl. I, I, I like I've, I've written it like for like little test programs or whatever, right? Uh, but usually at the time it was I wrote PHP and then I translated it to Perl, which actually is like a one-to-one translation for little like twenty-line scripts. It's like going from Ruby to Python, right? Like they're the same language, basically. Like. You know, as far as anybody's concerned, they're the same language. <laughs> so you can just like straight up copy paste from one to the other and it works. I don't uh, even know why we bother having Ruby and Python. <laughs> we should just have Ruby. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything that you wanted to open with? I've got one. Uh, so we got, um, <clears throat> I'm now speaking to the audience, which I love doing. Oh. And though usually I do it in the edit, not in the in the actual recording. So this is awkward because Jimmy's looking at me and I'm talking to nobody. And so there's a bit of a <laughs> bit of a hallucination going on here. Uh, we got a ton of feedback on the last episode, way more than normal from so many different sources like Mastodon and on the Slack. And I got email and it was great. That is very cool. And I love that. And I think more feedback coming in is a good thing. So if you're listening to this and you have things that you think about what we're about to say. Uh, don't hesitate to tell us the things that you think. Yeah. We have thick skins. We can take it. Yeah, I am all for it, right? Like, you know, the point of this show is to explore these concepts, not just between the two of us, but in general to get people talking and exploring these papers and thinking about these topics. And yeah, I'm going to have takes that you don't like, and Ivan's going to have takes that everyone enjoys and loves and thinks are perfect. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I think it's important that we're, you know, starting a conversation rather than just like concluding one mm-hmm. that that's always been my goal with these things. And I, and I hope, you know, I, I, what I never want to do with these papers personally is act as if we've like settled the issue. You know, I, I don't think we're here to give answers. We're here to explore and question things. I think that's important uh, for all of these papers to keep in mind that like we, there's no, there's no end to this dialogue. Yeah. And there was one particular a uh, bit of feedback that I received that I actually wanted to respond to on the show because I've been I've been dancing around this and I don't know if this will make it into the edit or not. I'll think about that. But it's from somebody on the Slack who goes by Personal Dynamic Media. Uh, they posted a very long, very thoughtful response to a whole bunch of different aspects of the Brooks episode, and I really enjoyed reading through that. And I'm it, I have it on my list to go and actually write some you know, fine-grained replies to specific points. But there's one thing that I wanted to actually say on the show, just because I I think that now that the show is in a new form, you know, Jimmy's here, 
and uh, we're doing papers and this is kind of settling into a thing, there's a, a, a point of confusion maybe about it that I just want to clear up. Man, I sound like I'm, like I'm becoming the manager of some large software project in the mid 80s when I use that kind of language. That weirds me <laughs> out. Um, so I'll just read the, the, uh, the quote from the feedback from Personal Dynamic Media. In general, it's more helpful to ask, what was it about this person's experience and environment that led them to view things this way? Are those things relevant to me and to now? If so, how? If not, what is different? Then to say, F this paragraph, or he's wrong here. So the feedback is, rather than being kind of dismissive and flippant and maybe even disrespectful or, or just like discarding things, it's better to do the the step of kind of wondering why it is the way it is. Like why, you know, did the author writing from the perspective they were writing from at the time they were writing from, why did they write that thing? Uh, was it for an audience that maybe existed at the time that the work was done that no longer exists? Or was it in reply to some other thing that we don't see because it wasn't explicitly called out because maybe it was more of a subtle kind of retort uh, you know, we, we refer to that as subtweeting these days. Um, and so what I wanted to say in reply to this is the sort of the coy remark that when we're saying this paragraph or he's wrong here, it's helpful to wonder why are we saying that and consider that it is it is a very deliberate conscious choice. It's something that we have some intentionality behind what we're doing. And I wanted to mention that on the show because this episode is going to be, um, it might be more of that than other episodes have been. <laughs> um, it might be the most of that that we will have for a while. I don't know. It depends what kind of, you know, dark web papers we end up surfacing over the coming year. Uh, but this is an episode where there's, I think, going to be a lot of contention between your present hosts and the uh, authors of the paper in question. And so, um, yeah, if there's a little bit of dismissiveness this time around, know that it is being done for a deliberate purpose. It is not just bludgeoning opinions we don't appreciate or ignoring perspectives that are valid, but maybe a little bit alien to us. We are, we are very consciously thinking about why things are and how they got to be that way and choosing to respond in a particular way for a particular reason. So, yeah, so I guess since, uh, since the opening segment of this show was about how we love to be dismissive of things that are, you know, truly terrible and unforgivable, today we bring you a truly terrible and unforgivable paper called Out of the Tar Pit by Ben Mosley and Peter Marks. <laughs> okay, so, so, so just, you know, I don't think, I don't think many of the, those references made it directly into the episode. They've been kind of sprinkled throughout, but like uh -huh. Ivan does not like this paper. I do not. And it took, when we mentioned, when we were talking about it and we talked about doing Brooks and I said, you know, we should definitely do no silver bullet, but my requirement was we had to do out of the tar pit right afterwards. And Ivan did not like that idea at all. Um, I, I'm fine with it. I just thought this is this would be a great one to save for like an April 1st episode or <laughs> some kind of like, you know, Halloween special or something like that. Like this is the peak of the mountain of crap in terms of papers. And so if we're going to summit that mountain, I'm going to want to do it as a special occasion because there's there's not many papers that I've read that I 
I have as much disdain for as this particular one. And and I think, you know, this would, might be surprising to a lot of our listeners. I mean, I don't think up until now it's obvious like why you would dislike this paper, but it's also a fairly beloved paper, right? It's this is a okay, so out of the tar pit, uh I think kind of got popular uh by a mention from Rich Hickey um in one of his talks. I can't remember which one, but it kind of it's a it's a very influential paper in the functional programming world, but especially the closure community. Out of the tar pit is kind of seen as this like this quintessential text. It, it is a direct answer to no silver bullet. So that's why I said that we should do this. And it's trying to say, here is my proposal for what will, uh, I guess it doesn't actually explicitly say give us 10x productivity or any of those things, but it does kind of claim that they found the silver bullet. Now, to be clear, since we talked in last episode, you know, we had this whole framing device and win and 10 years, blah, blah, blah. This is in 2006. So this is definitively outside of, of Brooks' timeline. Yeah, it's 20 years after Silver Bullet, which was 86. Yes, yes. So this is definitively outside of Brooks' timeline, so it was not a direct rebuttal at the time. Brooks would not have ever responded to this. And in fact, one of the things I was actually interested in, usually I try to, like, if I don't know the author, even if I do, I try to look up, like, the background of the other. I can't find these people. Yeah, me neither. I, I tried to find personal websites. I tried to find social profiles, anything like that. I got nothing. The mostly .name domain did not resolve for me. I even, like, archive.org things and, like... I just, yeah, I have no idea. Like, I found some Ben Mosley, who's a software engineer yeah. or, like, a researcher, but this paper's not listed, and the timeline seems a little off. And the area of specialization doesn't match up, because this Ben yeah. Mosley is, like, a like a astrophysics kind of, like, uh-huh. I think, like, JPL uh, or and NASA-affiliated developer. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And what's interesting is, like, you don't see the academic credentials. You don't yeah. see, you know, any EDU email address here, right? So, like, in the paper, we get Ben Mosley, and it's ben at mosley.name, and then Peter Marks, which is the email address public at indigomail.net. I, I almost wonder if these are pseudonyms. Yeah, I wonder if this is like BLTC trying to do some more like paradise engineering, like dose the public Brumpton cocktail, cocktail, smart drugs, neuroscanning, tar pit, sapiosexually, elevation magic, super spirituality, pull people out of the software complexity, fictionalism, turn them into uh, mindless automatons that don't feel pain and are able to <laughs> abolish the, the plight of wombats with chocolate. Uh... Or, or maybe this is, uh, you know, Ben Mosley, also known as Satoshi, right? Like, this mm-hmm. is the, the original anonymous paper that mm-hmm. was supposed to change the world and then, you know, turns into the Bitcoin. Did Anonymous ever publish a paper? We should do that on the show. If Anonymous ever actually published a paper, that would be good. I'm sure there's lots of cringy Anonymous <laughs> manifestos. <laughs> there you go. Next episode, yeah. we read Software Engineering Fanfic. Please write your best fanfic. Uh, I asked for it previously, and we never got some, so... Oh, we'll get some eventually, I'm sure. Um, if there's a natural step from Brooks to Tar Pit, then there is a natural step from Tar Pit to cringy fanfic. <laughs> like, that's the trajectory we're on. That's the vector. That's the direction that we're we're trending. Hey, it's me, the editor. On the next episode, we will be discussing 
the programming language Intercal and the fanfic that birthed it. So, so my, I'll just give, since Ivan has kind of given you, you know, his like, uh, wrong view on this paper, uh, that it's garbage, right? Like I loved this paper and yes, I used a past tense. tense. I used a past tense. (laughs) I loved this paper, but I think this is like, I, I, for me, every paper that I read with the exception of programming is theory building. As I, as I reread these things, I can take a more critical eye to them because like the main point they're making is already in my head, right? I've already internalized it. I've already thought about it. And so I can uh, really judge it more accurately. For me, Out of the Tar Pit was one of those papers that I discovered right at the same time that I discovered closure and functional programming. And so this really felt like a big change, a big revelation for me. And I do think that there's a lot that's really good in this paper, but my experience has also been colored by working on systems that try to realize the ideal that out of the tar pit here sets, which we'll get into what that is. But I've actually worked on systems where the whole team is influenced by that and really trying to achieve it. And I found it doesn't quite hold up the way you you want it to. Yeah, and, and as for my... Like, what is the legitimate source of my beefy <laughs> reaction to it? <laughs> also, uh, uh, I, I think this for this episode, I'm, I'm going to uh, dispense with my usual avoidance of animal-related metaphors and just go with like things like we're killing a sacred cow this time. That's that's what we are doing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So so all the all the meat murder is going to come flowing out of this particular vegetarian today. Um, yeah, like why? Wh- where? Where does my my big issue with this paper come from? Uh, we'll 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 figure that out as we go through it. I don't want to pre-set anything up because I think it's it's more fun to 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 pick up the trail of candy as you go along and eventually at the end discover, hey, I've been picking up rusty needles and jamming them into my ribs. I don't feel good anymore. <laughs> I need to lie down for a while. Uh, so uh, with that. <clears throat> All right, so I, I want to do some, even though, yes, yeah, so I want to do meta, but meta about the paper itself. Yeah, yeah, sure, okay, go for it. Okay, so so the paper is, we'll get into the content, but the paper's kind of broken up into two sections, and we're probably going to focus on the first half. Yes. Um, of these two sections. The first half is kind of the big picture, pie in the sky, sorts of like, what are we proposing? And the second half is like nitty gritty details mm-hmm. uh, that are interesting in and of themselves, but don't make for great you know, podcast material. Yeah. Um, they're really implementation details. They look at like even an example system and, and all of that. So, you know, there are some things in those later sections that we'll probably touch on, but they're, they're diving into some, some detail that we just probably can't cover. And also like, it's a long paper. Yeah. I mean, this thing is, it's not the longest paper we covered. Yeah, that would be uh, um, um, augmenting human intellect. Yes, there we go. <laughs> I was trying to stop drawing dynamic dead Doug. <laughs> I was on the D's. My dog is asking to go out. Okay, cool. Um, my nose is asking to be blown. <laughs> okay. So she wasn't asking to go out, so I won't have to go back. But 
I have pocket doors for it's like a two sets of pocket doors for this bathroom that kind of spans two rooms here. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, pull them so that they're not fully closed because if they're fully closed, she's just like, what's in there? There's, there must be something in there that you don't want me to have. So I'm going to scratch at the door. So I keep them slightly cracked with about like 1.4 dog widths, right? Standard dog width. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But she decides every time that that is not enough dog width for her to walk through. Mm hmm. It needs to be two or else she'll just scratch the door and ask me to open it further. Hmm. Even though she could very easily just walk straight through the doors. Nope. Uh. (laughs) This is the thing I've run into a a lot is like, uh, like people and animals as if there's any difference um, with like a, a, a sense of the amount of space needed to accommodate their body being a wild mismatch for the actual amount of space their body occupies. Like I have that, like I'm, I'm very tall, but I've always felt like I am a small person trapped in a big person's body um, <laughs> for whatever reason. Uh, all right. So yeah, w- let's, let's get back into this paper. <laughs> Sorry. No, let me rephrase that. Let's dive into the tar pit. Die, die, die. All right. All right. Let's dive into the tar pit. You want to read this, uh, this abstract? I think it, I think it's probably a pretty good starting point. Complexity is the single major difficulty in the successful development of large-scale software systems. Following Brooks, we distinguish accidental from essential difficulty, but disagree with his premise that most complexity remaining in contemporary systems is essential. We identify common causes of complexity and discuss general approaches which can be taken to eliminate them where they are accidental in nature. To make things more concrete, we then give a crappy outline for a potential complexity-minimizing approach based on functional programming and COD's relational model of data. Okay, so now in the edit, you have to have radio voice for all of things except for crappy? Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, that, okay. I, I've actually had to do that in the past. There have been, uh, there have been some times <laughs> where we've, one of us has been reading a quote and injects a little thing in the middle and I pull it out. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just like that it's a singular word here. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And there's a uh, span of text in the very first paragraph of the introduction that I think also serves as a really good summary of what the paper is about. And that is... The biggest problem in the development and maintenance of large-scale software systems. And so it's interesting there, large-scale software systems. So they've, they've got that framing, and I think we'll need to do a little bit of that where when we're reviewing this, we have to remind ourselves they're talking about large-scale software systems. They're not talking about hobbyist projects or whatever, video games or whatever. There's a, there's a focus on, on the same kind of framing that Brooks had, big industrial-scale software. The biggest problem in the development and maintenance of large-scale software systems is complexity. Large systems are hard to understand. We believe that the major contributor to this complexity in many systems is the handling of state and the burden that this adds when trying to analyze and reason about the system. And I've got to put a coin or I've got to, like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the thumb piano every time one of us says reason about because reason about after this paper and after the closure community adopted this paper 
every single thing, every new JavaScript framework, every new CSS library, every little project that somebody made was justified as better than what came before on the basis of it being easy to reason about. And that saying, easy to reason about, was so prevalent in the like mid part of the last decade that I, every time I saw it, I thought to myself, all right, coin in the swear jar. And it, I, I would have been, you know, able to retire with a cushy pension at this point off of that swear jar. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> reasoning about things, this is where it all started. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, <laughs> I guess, plunking the thumb piano, because that's the nearest thing I have to me. Uh, so, <laughs> um, and it's not just a thumb piano, actually. Uh, today's, today's swear jar will be a thumb piano with a little bit of pipe cleaner stuck between the, the tines. So uh, it's a kind of a muffled thumb piano. So that's what we're working with today. So when things are easy to reason about, I pluck the muffled thumb piano. Okay. I think this is, this is a, a great thing. I don't, I don't think I'm going to say that much other than in quotes, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll see. Okay. So we have this. Yes. I love this quote. I do think this is really getting at the crux of the paper. We have these large scale systems. They're hard to reason about because of state and we get kind of, Immediately that there's uh, the common solution here is object-oriented programming, and this is going to be the alternative. And, and I mean, this is really the paper. Like, I, I know that there's the relational stuff, and like, we'll get to the relational stuff. But I think of the, like, the arguments here, it is really that functional programming reduces state. State is the cause of complexity. And... The end. If we just do that, we have solved the problem and we no longer have uh, a bunch of accidental complexity and just have essential complexity. I'll, I'll put a bit of a twist on that. I don't even think that the functional programming versus object-oriented programming matters all that much to the main argument of the paper. I think the main argument of the paper is complexity is the problem and there are a bunch of things that can be done to reduce it, and there are a bunch of things that can be done to make it worse. And some of the things that reduce it don't reduce it very well. For instance, there's some parts of functional programming and some parts of logic programming that don't reduce complexity very well. And there's some parts of object-oriented programming that reduce it a little bit, but mostly make it worse. There's some parts of testing that can be used to get a grasp on the complexity, but they fail because of state and other things. And there's things you can do to control state. We're going to explore all of these different things you can do to wrestle with complexity. But I think if I had to say what I, my sense of what it's, the thrust of the argument is, is complexity bad, uh. state bad, uh. <laughs> don't do those things. Don't do complexity, don't do state, or at least mutable state. Yeah, we'll get to what, what state yeah. means here. And I actually think, it's it's interesting, because I actually think this paper has a little bit of a different take on mutable state than the community at large mm -hmm. has actually taken out of it, right? there's This is actually a little bit different of a take than the popular understanding of mutable state. So we can get to that though. Yeah. yeah. And so we start off with this introduction and this, that the quote that was read and then kind of like object-oriented programming is really the start of this introduction and the rest is a uh, overview of what the paper's going to be like, right? Mm -hmm. In section two, we do this. In section three, we do that. In section four. And I'm going to be honest, I, I hate that format. Yeah. I, it's, it's a waste of space, but I can see that some people like it. And so I'm happy for those people to be accommodated by that pattern. I'm not. 
All right. <laughs> hot, hot takes begin. <laughs> they begin in the most unlikely of places. Yeah. See, that's the worst part of this paper, right? Is that it? Like, yeah. It, I don't think it helps. Like, I get it, right? Because now I can just skip the sections I'm not interested if I already know, if I already agree with your premise, right? But. Huh. Like I've seen the dependency charts. I don't know if you've seen these in books. Uh, no. Okay. So I think this is a much in- more interesting way of doing it where they'll have chapter headings and then they have a dependency graph of which chapters depend on which. Mm, yeah. Uh, oh, I have seen this. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and I, I can get that because now it's like, oh, I, I can just skip in the flow to the sections and then I know which sections are not needed. And like it kind of adds a nonlinearity to a linear text, right? Whereas this kind of does that, and it's kind of choose your own adventure, because you could just go to this section, but they're so boring, and I just skip them every time. I just feel like they're filler. I, I don't feel like they add much to a paper at all. I'd rather just have a table of contents if, and th- rather than an explanation of every chapter, because if your headings are good enough, I could just figure that out. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think in general, I'm going to be advocating for make stuff visible. And this, you know, spending a little bit of space saying, here's the upcoming structure is a way of visualizing what you are about to go through. And Jimmy is already arguing in favor of making things invisible. So clearly he's the enemy. Uh, He's the one who's going to be defending the enemy of the state. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And and jokes about separation of Uh, uh, Alonzo Church and state. Yeah. Um, uh So what you're saying is every paper should come with a tempo marker at the top? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. And it should just say my tempo. (laughs) (laughs) It should say there should be the sound of snapping fingers. And Uh and you're supposed to read this this paper at at, at my tempo. So we get out of... I I do think this paper, we're probably going to do a linear read through it. There's certain papers where we don't. Uh, But now we go into, into the second section and it's definitively giving us that... Uh, not only do they disagree with uh, Brooks's contention that everything is accidental, they also disagree with the source of complexity. Mm-hmm. So it says that Brooks gave them four things, which are complexity, conformity, changeability, and invisibility, and they think the only major source of... Uh, hold on. That make building software hard. I was going to say the only major source of complexity is complexity, <laughs> is complexity yeah. which did not sound good. So the only major source of like things that make software hard is complexity, and all the rest of them can just be classified as forms of complexity. Mm-hmm. I've already got a take on this paragraph, if you're up for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So uh, the first thing, I've, I've got this paragraph highlighted and, and uh, another one coming up soon and then, and then nothing for a while. So I'm, I might spend a minute on this one. So this paragraph begins, In his classic paper, No Silver Bullet, Brooks, identified in the, uh, the bibliography as Bro86, so I'm going to start calling him <laughs> Bro86 because that's uh, <laughs> pretty good. Um, Bro86 identified four properties of software systems which make building software hard. Complexity, conformity, changeability, and invisibility. Pink highlight. Of these, we believe that complexity is the only significant one. The others can be classified as forms of complexity or seen as problematic solely because of the complexity in the system. And I'm going to argue throughout this episode that they got this wrong. And from this initial mistake, fall out all other mistakes. And I'm going to reread this as they should have written it. 
complexity, conformity, changeability, and invisibility. Of these, we believe that invisibility is the only significant one. The others can either be classified as forms of invisibility or be seen as problematic solely because of the invisibility in the system. And so as we go, I am going to be giving us the interpretation of Out of the Tar Pit had it been about invisibility instead of complexity. And you will see that many of their arguments work just as well or better when you view them through the lens of invisibility as they do when you view them through the lens of complexity. Okay, so now this is where Ivan announces he's writing a counter paper called Into the Mosh Pit. <laughs> <laughs> That cozy mosh pit. Uh, yeah, so uh, I am so glad that you had a, a different take because uh, I agree with you that this is the problem of the paper, right? That, like, this is the framing, and this is what... I think this is the novelty of the paper as well, right? Mm -hmm. Is to say all of these other things are not important. It is about complexity, and complexity is to be identified with state, right? This is the simple made easy move, mm -hmm. right? They don't quite put it in those terms, but you can see Rich giving us the simple made easy. And he's saying like, simplicity is about taking things apart and complexity is about intertwining things. And so if we can make things simple, we remove this intertwining and they say state is what intertwines everything, which I think Rich has a little bit more complex of a view <laughs> yeah or nu nuanced he has he has a more sophisticated view yeah a more sophisticated view than than just like uh than just state i think he looks at a lot of different things that do this intertwining yeah right um but i definitely have to agree with disagree with your take as well uh-huh already uh -huh. before i even get to make my case yeah before you even make your case that's fair <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, maybe I'll end up believing you, but my gut, right, my my pre-philosophical uh, statement here, before I've done all the philosophy that you're going to give us here about invisibility, is that all four of these actually really do matter, and Brooks got, got some good criteria. Now, there might be more, but at the very least, all four of these really do matter for these systems, and I can think in my career of different systems that had different problems of each of these. Mm-hmm. And that they might have been very visible, but the amount of conformity we had to adhere to caused the system to be hard to work with, mm -hmm. right? Or they might have been very simple, but invisible. Um, or they might have been, yeah, like any of these things. I can think of where any of these dimensions could have caused the systems to be hard to work on or did cause the systems to be hard to work on. And I think, like when we did... No Silver Bullet, you especially emphasized changeability as something that meant a lot to you or that, that you had a particular mm -hmm. emphasis on. And I, I, I'm not going to be so you know flippant as to say, no, you're wrong, only invisibility. I agree. Like all of these things and others are valuable ways of examining the software that we build at, you know, at the personal scale all the way up to the industrial scale and the systems that we build that are not software. These are all valuable lenses through which we can uh, view a problem and see that problem kaleidoscopically spiral into a fractal of beautiful pains. 
And I think that um, my my interest in invisibility here is just because as I read through Tarpit again this time, and we've both read this paper a number of times, and mm -hmm. so reading through it again this time, I, I started noticing how many of the arguments in this paper worked just as well for invisibility as they did for complexity. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from, is I'm not, I'm not truly earnestly, sincerely saying that none of those other things matter, just that this paper does a good job arguing uh, for invisibility being a problem. Or at least it does as good a job of that as it does arguing complexity is the root of all evil. So, <laughs> and just a low bar. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean... I think that that's, that's probably a valid way of putting this, right? They tell us that all these other ones could be seen as complexity or, or are only problematic because of complexity. But I feel like taking them and doing that inverse, like all of these things could be seen as invisibility. I think that's the other unique one here. Uh, like changeability, I don't think you could define everything in terms of changeability. Right. Conformity, you couldn't define everything in in terms of conformity, yeah. but complexity and invisibility, that's a potential. Yes. Yeah. You can lump those other things up under the umbrella of complexity or invisibility. Yeah. And that makes them interesting. And that, and that to me is what suggests, like you said, that there are probably other similar categories into which you can group the evil that lives at the heart of the software that we build. If you want, you know, to, to view that evil from, you know, in, in, in different ways and say, here are the, here are the four evils at the heart of all software. You could pick four different things and probably make just as solid an argument as Brooks had. And then pick one and say that one is the er evil that, that the others can be expressed in terms of, and that's probably relatively doable as well. Uh, there's a challenge for anybody. I, mean, I, I actually, I'm so last episode, I introduced my color scheme. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, review my color scheme again because I'm going to use it as shorthand as we go and one of the colors suddenly has uh, has importance here uh, I'm using yellow meaning hey this is interesting and we should talk about it green is good pink is bad blue is something entertaining or funny and purple is this is relevant to FOC and so I think this idea of um you know, could you design a programming that had a different set of four evils at the heart of it, any one of which could be the one that would encompass the others, be the er-evil? Could you design another kind of programming that had different er-evil at the heart of it? There's a challenge for the future of coding community. What other kinds of evils can you put at the heart of your programming other than complexity, conformity, changeability, and invisibility? So... I like this frame and I think it's interesting to keep in mind this, like, can we really justify invisibility over complexity? And so let's start with their argument for why is complexity called out as the main source here, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll just read a quote. The primary status of complexity as the major cause of all other problems comes simply from the fact that being able to understand a system is a prerequisite for avoiding all of them. And of course, it is this which complexity destroys. Now, it seems like on the surface, invisibility might work just as well here, mm -hmm. right? In order to understand a system, you have to be able to see it. If it's opaque, if it's invisible, you can't, you can't see, you can't understand. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's true. Now, this is a simple example, but one simple example I'll give is the standard visual programming node and wire interfaces that are just turned into this big ball of spaghetti. 
in and of himself, those things are visible. There's nothing hidden. And if there is, just take all of those things that are hidden and let's put them out more into some nodes and wires, right? Until we have all the parts exposed. And if it's this big web of spaghetti mess, we don't have an easy way to understand this. And the only way we're going to get to understand it is not by changing its visibility or not, but by reducing the complexity. Yeah. So you're, uh, you're going to f- force me to draw out some of my uh, points that I uh, um, realized from later on in the paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for instance, when, uh, when Mosley and Marx get into talking about functional programming and logic programming, they talk a lot about the benefits, but they don't talk so much about um, what you have to trade off to get those benefits. And one of the things that they don't talk about that I think really does matter is ergonomics. It's not sufficient to say, here's a thing that is better in this one respect. So in your example with node wire programming, it's like, oh, it's more visible than it would be. You know, it's more visible all laid out on one giant canvas that you can zoom out and see your whole system all at once Mm -hmm. than it would be split up into a bunch of different textual code files where you can't see the whole system at once. Or if you can see it, you can't truly see it. And I would say that that's the failure of that counter argument is that it is no more ergonomic, if not less ergonomic to just have a giant spaghetti ball of mud. And so I'm not going to argue that the spaghetti ball of mud is better because of that failure of ergonomics. But I, I think that just making some giant visual thing that is superficially similar to what people mean when they say visual programming is not what I'm advocating for. I'm advocating for something different than that. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, and that's why I threw it out there. But, but I don't think you can make the same. I don't have to make the same qualifiers for complexity. If I said I took this complex system and I made it simpler, and now it's harder to understand, that almost feels like a contradiction in terms, right? Simplicity just is the property of being easier to understand. And so it, that's maybe why there's this privilege here. And we don't have to decide this now, but I, I just want to keep that in mind as we continue on with this paper to see, does the, the proposal actually keep that property? And I'm nervous about terms like complexity and simplicity as used in this paper and as used in the discourse around this paper, because they tend to be used to kind of tautologically claim that something is better because you can say, oh, this thing is simpler than that thing, therefore it's better when the definition of simple is like, you know, it inherently includes a a value of it being better. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's better because it's simple and it's simple because it's better. There's There's a little bit of circular reasoning there that I don't like. And the thing that especially irks me about it is that there's no one dimension along which we're going to be evaluating these things, right? So you can't say something is simpler, period, in most respects. Like, Mm -hmm. it may be simpler in one dimension while being equally as complex in some other dimension. And the dimension along which you've made it simpler is irrelevant to the problem at hand. And so I think this, this use of simple and complex as just kind of broad 
values or broad assessments of a of a particular part of software i find them kind of lacking because they're not they're not directed at very granular aspects and i like that when they talk about state in this paper i find that they're much more specific mm -hmm. and they use state as an example of a thing that can produce complexity and so in that sense they're saying here's a particular way that complexity can be manifested it's through this mutable state and they get very granular about the ways that um, like in functional programming, here's some places, you know, monads bring a little bit of, of state back in and, you know, they handle it elegantly and they just kind of drop that and move on. But they, when they get into logic programming, it's like, you know, pure logic programming lacks some expressivity. And so we bring in a little bit of state to try and accomplish that or to improve performance. And they're very critical of that. And so I think this, this focus on, very specific dimensions along which things can be simple or complex is really important. And I would say the same is true of visibility and invisibility. It's something like visual, like a node wire visual programming language is no more visible than text programming, just period. Just like as a, as an, hmm. as a flat statement, there's no difference in visibility between those two things. If you want to actually assess differences in the ways in which they are visible or the ways in which they help you visualize the behavior of the system, you need to be much more specific and focused than that. Yeah. Yes. I think we've gotten some good frames here. And what mm -hmm. I want to make sure we do is we don't get lost in contemporary discourse and we try to, you know, I don't think we have, but I just think this is a danger. And this is something I did, right, is kind of inject rich hickeyisms onto this paper or inject, you know, popular culture things and instead take the paper at its own terms yeah. and look at what it says and try to see if it's providing its own internally consistent view. Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be the more interesting thing here to look at. And then we can also look at our own experience and does this confer with that and, and all of those things, right? But I want to, like, let's maybe try to inhabit the world of the paper for, for a little while. Uh, before we get to <laughs> gross <laughs> ew but sure do you not like reading dystopian novels i mean that's all this should be for you right you can inhabit a world you don't like that's fine so speaking of dystopian immediately after this 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 uh part we were just reading it it lists a bunch of quotes and uh and references. Turing Award lecture quotes. Yeah, just to try and justify complexity as being the er-evil. It's like Dykstra says, we have to keep it crisp, disentangled, and simple if we refuse to be crushed by the complexities of our own making. And it follows that up with, and The Economist devoted a whole article to software complexity, noting that by some estimates, software problems cost the American economy $59 billion annually. And... I just feel like these are pretty weak references. Like, this is not um, a rigorous justification for their view. It just feels like they did a keyword search for software complexity and grabbed some things that talk about complexity without doing the thing that I was just saying that I want to see people do, which is be very specific about what complexity means, like in, in a very particular way. And they'll get there. Yeah, but these quotes do nothing for it. I think they're all a waste of space. I agree that they're... So we got Corbato, we got Bacchus, we got Hoare, we got Dijkstra. Like, this is kind of trying to, you know, go on the prestige here of these people and say, yeah. look at these great Turing Award winners, 
how could you possibly disagree with them? It's an argument from authority. It is. It's kind of an argument from authority. And there's some, I mean, there's some nice pithy quotes, right? Um, but yeah, I don't think they amount to much in making the argument. And I actually think what's most interesting about this paper is that they give us a different way of viewing complexity mm-hmm. than like maybe the simple minded version that these quotes m- might be taken as alluding to. But what we get immediately after these quotes is that there is an unfortunate truth. And that's that simplicity is hard. And that this is not something that we're going to be able to easily conjure up. There's not going to be some one answer that we can just go run an automated refactoring on our program and then all of a sudden they're no longer complex. The work of making it easy to understand programs is going to be a very difficult task that we have to continuously work at and continuously do even with, I think, I think the, you know, maybe there's not an explicit statement here, but I think it's kind of understood that even with these, this FRP system that they're going to be proposed, which stands for functional relational programming, that it's not going to be this easy answer that immediately you're going to get it all right and you'll never have any problems. That it is going to be this iterative process that as we get more and more towards the ideal state of no complexity. So now we get. One maybe definition we're offered here, I'm just going to put this out there as a provisional definition of complexity, is it's whatever it is that makes it hard to understand our systems, mm-hmm. right? We don't, we're not identifying, we're not giving like, here's how you pinpoint it, but we know there's complexity there when it's hard to understand our systems. And so the question now is, how do we understand our systems, because only if we know what approaches we take to understand our systems will we understand how to fix this lack of understanding. And so the, the, really they identify two approaches, testing and informal reasoning. I think that's a little, little simplistic, to be honest. I don't know. Maybe informal reasoning captures everything you want to do. But yeah, these are the two p- points that they focus on here. Yeah, and they're, they're good for reasons that I'll get to in a little bit, they're good at saying that these aren't the only two ways, but these are just two widely used approaches. That's a good point. And I'm just, I, I just want to double emphasize that. They say, these aren't the only two ways. These are just two widely used approaches. We're just going to look at these two. There's others out there, but we're going we're gonna to care about these two. I just want to double emphasize that. Double emphasize. Testing and informal reasoning. Testing being, you know, automated testing, unit tests, or like um, driving from the outside. I think their definition doesn't include unit tests. Um, they do talk about that later on, how it's like the, the there's they talk about the trade-off between writing little tiny unit tests and, and driving from the outside. Yeah, they, but they say it, this is an attempt to understand a system from the outside as a black box. Right, and system could mean the whole thing, or it could mean some subsystem, right? Like system is is a is a vague word in this context. I think intentionally so. Okay, yeah. I, I just want to, you know, I know there's unit testing advocates that might read some of this description and think, yes, but that's what they missed, right? Yeah. They missed that if you test all of the parts, not as a black box, not just look at the input-output of the whole system, right? Because it, it, it this really does seem... Like, yes, they mention smaller parts, but they really seem to have the frame of, yes. like, the big integration test, the manual QA test, the, you know, they don't seem to have 
in mind a sort of holistic unit testing approach that maybe modern people might advocate for. And I, I think, and I read it with this view in mind, that I don't think they ever say anything that suggests to me that they're only talking about like the total software product that is produced at the industrial scale and shipped as a monolithic entity. Mm-hmm. I think they are thinking about subsystems within that, right? Like they talk in a little bit about concurrency and and about, you know, separate systems that need to communicate uh, asynchronously, that sort of thing, right? Like they, they talk about yeah. um, that systems are comprised of smaller systems. And so when we're talking about testing, we're talking about, I think we're talking about a system at any scale. Yes, unit testing people are going to yeah. get up our butts about that, but you know, they'll have lots of company. They do specifically mention that automated tests are more common for individual component tests. Yes. So yeah. you could you could see that. I just I just want to put that out there because I could imagine someone saying unit testing is informal reasoning. And I said informal reasoning. You said the the R word. <laughs> <laughs> I had a reason to say it though. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so testing and informal reasoning. So informal reasoning is an attempt to understand the system by examining it from the inside. Mm-hmm. The hope is that by using the extra information available, a more accurate understanding can be gained. So this is why I'm saying unit testing almost feels a little bit more like that from the inside, right? And using that information as a design tool, as an understanding tool, that's what I think a lot of the like TDD advocates and things like that would would say mm-hmm. that they're doing is it's like it's not formal reasoning in the like, you know, mathematically pure sense, but it's a little bit better than like the loosey goosey informal reasoning, right? It's kind of that halfway between those two. Yeah, a little bit better than the than the formal mathematical reasoning too, because that stuff's terrible. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they are like very one of the things I like about those papers, they're very clear of their opinions here. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they don't beat around the bush and like, ah, oh, this could be good. Like they try to give it something, but they'll just say of the two informal reasoning is the most important by far. Yeah. And I have that highlighted in purple because to me, that's a great future of coding challenge. Can you come up with a programming where informal reasoning doesn't help and you really need something? You need like an AI or some kind of like machine based, you know, property based testing or something like that, or some other way where informal reasoning will not help you in this programming. Can you come up with a, uh, a kind of programming where, you know, you are lost, you are without hope, and you need to get some kind of help other than reasoning to get through it? I think that'd be a fun challenge. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that would be like. That's why it's a fun challenge, because you'd have to go, what, what does this even mean? It's like a, okay. you know, uh, coming up with a new kind of programming as an art practice. Like maybe linear B is the example. Linear B. Yeah. So the the ancient fragment of uh, of text that we've never been able to translate. Whoa! I don't know what this is. This is cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we have linear A and linear B. Uh, if you look up uh, images of them, they're these like uh, I think it was a Minoan language that we. We're, we've been able to translate linear A, but have not been able to translate linear B. We do not know what it says. Linear B.io, developer workflow automation. 
Hey, engineering leader, developer workflow automation is the secret to improving your DORA metrics. If when I look up Linear B, it's a Wikipedia article with exactly the things I'm talking about. You can identify inefficiency with pipeline metrics. <laughs> you can hit your goals with workflow automation and deliver on promises with a project delivery tracker. If we still had sponsors, this would be the weirdest way of you including a sponsor ad in this, which is not... Linear B automatically identifies and benchmarks your engineering metrics to help teams focus in five key areas. Code quality. <sighs> <clears throat> okay, Linear B on Wikipedia. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sure you... For the JavaScript engine, see Linear B script engine. ECMAScript engines... I can't tell if he's really reading something or just making up everything that he's saying. No, it's in, it's the disambiguation right at the top of the Linear B article. Oh, apparently it's my sine and my wife just texts me from the other room because she knows more <laughs> about this than I do. Uh. Yeah, it does say my sine right at the top. <laughs> A syllabic script used for writing in Mycenaean Greek. Uh, yes. The earliest attested form of Greek. <laughs> they had somebody at gunpoint, and it's like, what's the earliest form of Greek? Uh, it's Mycenaean. Yeah, so so we haven't been able to translate this this fragment, right? And we've tried and tried and tried and have not been able to do it. And now people are trying to apply these, like, you know, language models and blah, 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 blah to try to decode it. So mm-hmm. you could imagine something. I just, that's the first thing that comes to my mind where it's been countless people trying to informally reason through this thing, even take statistical methods, right, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> they've never been able to figure out exactly what it is. So, uh, so we need the linear B of programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that, that will be the, uh, you know, the can you make it <laughs> harder to reason about jam. Finally. Or uh, intercal might also be a fun example uh, yeah. of this, which we definitely need to cover at some point. Yeah, definitely. That would be um, a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like the original eso lang, um, esoteric language, and uh, it has some cool features where it's like not trying to only be a joke, but also is constantly a joke. Right, like it's both useful and not. It, it. I, I really like the mix of it. So that's definitely on the list. Yeah, that that would actually be a good one after this. After this, because it's you know, this paper's a joke. <laughs> oh my gosh, Ivan. Uh, all right. So they want to say that informal reasoning matters more because the key problem with testing is that you can never test the whole thing, mm-hmm. and that. In their mind, informal reasoning can capture more than what you can test. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally agree with this. I know I'm, I'm not an anti-test person, but I also think that I, I've worked in systems. I worked in a system that had a quote-unquote 100% test coverage, which, yes, I know, that's not what everyone says it should be, blah, blah, blah. We're not going to. But we had lots of tests. And even when we lowered it from 100% test coverage, like 70% as like a metric, and we kept it at like a good 90%, it was the worst system for making changes that I've ever worked on. And it was the worst system for understanding because the tests were written in this awful way. I'm not saying that good tests are not useful, but testing in and of itself and having all these assertions was not helpful for understanding this thing. And the only way I could go to understand this was looking through the code, reasoning about it, ripping out all the tests and replacing them with something informed by that informal reasoning. So for me, I think you make a larger argument that like the 
good tests are informed by informal reasoning. And so that's why they would be subservient. I think they're useful tools, but I definitely think that it, you can't understand a system without that sort of informal reasoning. Again, a TDD person is probably going to say, no, yes, I can. Look, I wrote all these tests and that's how I understood the system. But then to combine those into the whole, they use informal reasoning. Yeah, you can't do testing without doing some reasoning. Like that's just yeah. like... That, that seems like a like a like an impossibility or at least if you wanted to say oh yes I can then you're just going to be quibbling about the definition of these terms I think exactly right and and I mean so like this point isn't I don't think it's grand right because like yeah it makes sense that you have to reason about your system to understand it yeah but it's an important stepping stone on the path to talking about how different aspects of complexity uh, negatively impact our ability to reason. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they're setting up. Yeah. Yep. And they they include a, another Dijkstra quote from his Turing Award speech. Those who want really reliable software will discover that they must find means of avoiding the majority of bugs to start with. Which I think is an argument in favor of visibility is the most important thing, and that's all I'll say, and <laughs> we can move on. Uh, there's another quote from O'Keefe, who also stressed the importance of understanding your problem and that elegance is not optional, who said, Our response to mistakes should be to look for ways that we can avoid making them, not to blame the nature of things. And, uh, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, what is not to blame the nature of things? What does that have to do with what we're talking about here? Do you have any idea, Jimmy? Because I, I read that and I was like, I don't see how that relates to what we're talking about. Unless you just want to like, you know, get stoned and sprawl out and go like, yeah, the nature of things makes it hard to reason about. <laughs> and that's, that's why it's like, I don't see the direct connection. Uh, so here's my assumption. Cause I did not read the text, right. That we're that this is quoting from, but my assumption is the attitude of like, you, you come across this bug, Right. And it is clearly a mistake that somebody made. They used an API wrong, et cetera. And they're just like, oh, well, you know, that part of the system is just finicky. And like, you can't, like, you can't help but make bugs there because it's just finicky and no one's ever going to not make bugs there. And I've, I've worked with people who kind of have that attitude. And the, I think this quote would be, oh, you know, Yes, that might be finicky or whatever, but blaming it is not the answer. Code defensively, right? Make it so that the way you write the code will make it so even if that component's buggy, your code won't be. Right, so it's like... That would be my assumption for the, the context here. The benefit of informal reasoning is that when you emphasize informal reasoning and you focus on the informal reasoning as an important part of your programming practice, when you encounter code that is complex and difficult to understand, you should blame not the nature of things, not the code itself, but you should blame your own inability to understand it. Because the informal reasoning that you do is your responsibility, and if you don't understand it, it's your own fault. So. Yeah, and so you blame yourself for not having thought about those things sufficiently, and now go think about them, and make sure that, yes, even if that part of the system's buggy, my code will doesn't have to be, or that part of the system's slow, my code doesn't have to be. And I think this is a really important habit for making good software because we've all worked with people who have, you know, we've worked with dependencies that are 
dependencies we'd rather not take. Yeah. <laughs> they're not dependable. Yeah. 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 They're down all the time. They're slow. They're buggy. They're whatever. But there are ways to make sure that even if those things happen, you don't deal with it. And you've seen, I've seen all these sorts of things. Like, I, I think I mentioned this before, where like there was some software that didn't take this into account at all about the world around them. And if you were at like from like mid 11 till, uh, in my time zone from like 11 to midnight, you couldn't submit any forms cause they looked at the day or whatever. Right. And so like you can think about things where it's like, yeah, there's practices that we embed into our software. Like the network isn't reliable. We always do retries, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. I think that's what this quote might be getting at, but you know, without reading the original. Who knows? Because it's too ambiguously situated. It's not <laughs> tied to anything. It does not seem to support any part of the argument. I had one more right after, like the immediate mm-hmm. next yes. sentence after not to blame the nature of things is, the key problem with testing is that a test of any kind that uses one particular set of inputs tells you nothing at all about the behavior of the system or component when it is given a different set of inputs. I have that highlighted in purple because that feels like a good future of coding challenge. Can you come up with a kind of a test, a kind of testing where using one particular set of inputs does tell you something about the system or component when it is given a different set of inputs? I know of some existing things that do that already, Yes, but that feels to me like an area that is... Um, worth exploring some more, if for no other reason than to further prove that this essay is. <laughs> so I have this highlighted in blue because <gasps> my highlighting color scheme is random. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you highlight. And it just happened to be blue. Yeah. And and what did that lead you to want to say about it? <laughs> okay, so I I think you're being a little pedantic here. Okay. Gonna be honest, and I knew this is. I highlighted it. Part part of my highlights are speculative highlights of what Ivan will highlight. So blue is blue's clues. This is when I'm gonna talk <laughs> back to the to the podcast about this, or talk back to the essay about this particular thing. Uh, all right. So so I think that yes, of course you could come up with some form of testing where the inputs tell you about other inputs or whatever, right? For example, symbolic execution, right? That's one way where you put in this symbol and now it gives you some constraints on what the ranges are, blah, 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 blah. There's ways of doing it. The point is most testing tells you nothing about this. And this is a practically minded industrial scale. What techniques are really pe- are people really using? right? And so most testing tells you nothing about those inputs. And I've seen this in practice. I worked at a software company or a company that made software. They weren't a software company. (laughs) Anyways, I worked at a company that spent lots of money on software and had no idea how to make it. And I was part of this hundred million dollar technological renovation, innovation system. And we were building a $20 million part of it. Anyways, doesn't matter. Just like th- these numbers are absurd. Industrial scale. You were you were yes. programming at industrial scale. Yeah, yeah, but it, that you know that's a negative thing. Anyways, so we had this whole integration testing system where somebody from some third party company had made a big list of all the tests we were supposed to run, and I went to my manager after finally seeing this list of all the tests we were supposed to run, and I said, "These tests mean nothing." Like. I could fake every one of these tests 
and we would pass and yet the system wouldn't work. Like there's no, nothing about this actually tells us the system works or not. These are bad tests. And of course, instead of hearing someone overheard me and instead of hearing my point about you could fake the test, they said I was trying to fake tests, which like, no, I was making a point about what is like that, that these are bad tests, right? And so I, I think this is reality, right? The, we have this system of inputs, we have these tests, and they don't tell us anything about our system in cases that we might care about outside of these tests. So I, I, yes, you're right. We could probably go build a system and maybe this is making too much of a definitive statement, but you know, there's a, there's a purpose for that. Yeah. It's it, once again, inside the frame, I agree with this claim outside the frame. I'm covered in flame. <laughs> so we got a, a Dykstra quote after there. Uh, to, you know, we, we have all these like, these like arguments from authority with these like, you know, big figures, right? So we got testing is hopelessly inadequate. It can be used very effectively to show the presence of bugs, but never to show their absence. Uh, Yeah. And it follows with, we agree with Dykstra rely on testing at your peril. And I should say, I got to start relying on preview.app at my peril because I had that highlighted with a note next to it and that's gone now. But I remember what the note was. Mine's highlighted green. Which means? Nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I have random colors. Yeah, but then... The, the, I what? just swap between them to separate the fact that they're highlights. No. But what what's the difference between it being highlighted and it being not highlighted? Uh, so that whenever I'm scrolling through, I know which bits are the important bits to talk about. Okay, yeah. So it does mean that it's important to talk about. That's what that, there there we go. That's what I care about. <laughs> oh, I highlight all my paper. I, I start by highlighting everything manually, right? I just highlight all of them a, a nice pale pink, uh, and then I highlight on top. <laughs> So they say, rely on testing at your peril. A little bit to me feels like saying rely on seatbelts at your peril. Like, just because something has the possibility of failing you doesn't mean that you can't rely on it to do better than failing. And they, they say in the, in the immediate next sentence, that's not to say that testing has no use. The bottom line is that all ways of attempting to understand a system have their limitations, and this includes both informal reasoning, which is limited in scope, imprecise, and hence prone to error, as well as formal reasoning, which is dependent upon the accuracy of a specification. I just, I feel a little bit like this paper is at its best, and I'm going to call this out again when we run into it, when it makes these kind of punchy quotes like rely on testing at your peril. That's the stuff that I, I love. Because it's the authors, it's the authors having a bit of fun, right? Like they're trying to make a punchy proclamation about something, and I love that. I also disagree with the, uh, or at least I fear a little bit somebody reading that and uh, having their ways changed by it. Like I, I think you know nobody is relying on testing who should be swayed not to do it by this argument here. Um, so I don't know that, that I, I like that and it bugs me a little bit. <clears throat> um, and, and this actually, this next section where it says the bottom line is that all ways of attempting to understand a system have their limitations. I'm going to bring up the first of my 
takeaways, the first of my like summary questions from this paper, which is to ask, what are the limitations of simplicity? Because this paper, like there's a sentence right here, it says, it's precisely because of the limitations of all of these approaches that simplicity is vital. When considered next to testing and reasoning, simplicity is more important than either. They talk a lot about the limitations of things you can do to help you understand. And they say simplicity is the most powerful aid to understanding, to, to defeat complexity, which, you know, complexity is the difficulty of understanding. You turn to simplicity, but they never, to me, clearly articulate what are the limits of simplicity? What's the flavor of simplicity? What's the color of simplicity? What's the texture of simplicity? When is simplicity not the right approach? When is it impossible? When is it impractical? When is it, you know, something to be avoided? Because those are all, I think, things that exist. There are cases where simplicity is not the thing to turn to. And I would love to see that, or I would, would have loved to see them explore that a little more because it would have helped me feel more like the arguments in favor of simplicity are supported by saying, and here's the counter arguments to it. See, I actually think this paper does itself a disservice in its organization. Mm -hmm. I think section two uh, should have been moved around. I don't know where it goes. Maybe it just comes bumped down. But sec section six of this paper, I actually think is the best one of the rest of the paper. <laughs> Uh, like it, it is, I think the, the main, the main interesting point that it makes is in section six and had that been moved up to the front, mm. it would make all of the conversations we keep having about complexity way more crisp and interesting. Do you want to jump down and do that one? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's actually important because I keep wanting to make the point yeah. that I know is coming in section six. And we're right at the end of section three. We can come back and pick up from section four, which gets into causes of complexity. It's very much more granular and that kind of thing. We can come back to that because there's a bunch yes. of stuff in there. But sure, let's skip ahead to section six, which I have. I, I've written a summary of, of every section, and most of them are like summary of section two. Brooks, but only complexity truly matters. Summary of section three, two common ways to understand systems are testing, examining from outside, and informal reasoning, examining from inside. Simplicity is more important than both. Summary of section six is, oops, f***ed up Brooks. <laughs> See, that is why I found, this is actually one of the reasons I found our conversation about Brooks so interesting, was the stark contrast you actually see between Brooks' ideas of accident and essence and what my ideas of accident and essence were going into Brooks, which were based on this paper. Same. Right. I read out of the tar pit first and I had put in my mind the, the notions of accident and essence as if that's what Brooks was meaning. And here we find a, a stark difference and they do specifically say that they're disagreeing with Brooks. Yeah. Good on them. Yep. Yes. Okay, so I'll just read the first uh, two paragraphs here. Yeah. Brooks defined difficulties of essence as those inherent in the nature of software and classified the rest as accidents. We shall basically use the terms in the same sense, but prefer to start by considering the complexity of the problem itself before software has even entered the picture. Hence, 
we define the following two types of complexity. Essential complexity, which is inherent in and the essence of the problem as seen by the users. And accidental complexity is all the rest. So I think this is such a different frame. Like, I mean, I think it, it deserves maybe more. This is why I think this should have been up front. This should have been really like the highlight here because this is a major disagreement with Brooks. And when they say from the beginning that they think most of what we're talking about is accidental, not essential, they mean accidental to the user. So what they're saying is all of the software that we build, the metaphors we use like functional programming, the metaphors we use, the terminology we use, the, the language we use, everything about it is not what the user thinks about. And because it's not what the user thinks about, it's accidental. It's a historical fact of how we've built software. It's a, it is not a necessary part of how we could solve that problem. And I think that's fascinating. And this is the part that I think has been lost in the culture from this paper, that even if it's totally unattainable, it is such an interesting vision for what programming should be like. It really like looks at like end-user programming. It really casts a, a very different model from programming than I think what we even get in this paper, right? This insight, I think, is fantastic and interesting. It's, I don't care about the names, that they're using, like the fact that they're using essence and accident, the fact that they're talking about complexity, like I, I, I just blur out those words and this split between like the parts of the programming activity that are relevant to the users and the parts of the programming activity that are relevant to the programmer, assuming those are separate people, like Jimmy said, and user programming has an interesting set of perturbations that it makes upon this breakdown this this cleaving of the space in twain um but I, I i like that as a split it's very like galaxy brain to me like it's very much like we're taking a huge zoomed out meta view of things but when you sometimes you want to do that and i think this is a nice one yeah and we get like how radical this is yeah it says for example according to the terminology we shall use in this paper Bits, bytes, transistors, electricity, and computers themselves are not in any way essential because they have nothing to do with the user's problem. Yeah. I think that that's wonderful. This is such, I think this is actually the most radical take we've read. If it continued on in this vein, I think it would be a much more interesting paper. And it, it kind of does, and it kind of says like, oh, I, we, yes, we've been big galaxy brain here, and now we're going to bring it back to reality where we can't quite do this. But I love this, and I think it is an aspiration worth shooting for. And I think we've a lot of people have lost this part of this paper, and I think that's to our own peril. Like, what can we do to make it so we're thinking just in the user's problem. Now, of course, what's going to come up in people's minds is chat GPT. <laughs> I want to make a rule of like maybe not mentioning it too much because it's like a meme at this point of mentioning it everywhere. It's going to date this podcast. Like, Oh, it does. Yeah. The fact that we don't have robot overlords yet is also going to date this podcast. But And that's like, I, I have nothing against that being a potential here, right? Maybe you can think in those terms. But I think there are other ways to do this as well. 
Some might be about like domain specific languages. That's kind of getting at some of this idea. Some of it might be, I think personally, widening the, like I think the end user programming thing can be, let's go make it easier for end users. Let's go make it so that they're thinking in those terms. But it can also be about changing what is in the vocabulary of users and how you do think about things. I think that's one of the most interesting things about programmers is when we encounter the world, we encounter these techno social systems differently than the the non-programmer, right? And maybe we shouldn't have to, whatever. But there is something to that, right? And we can start thinking in these terms. So I think all of these things have such an interesting frame. And I love this part. And if, the reason I wanted to jump to the section, if we take complexity to mean accidental stuff, right? Things that are not part of what the user's thinking about for this problem, all those bits, all of the stuff in the prior sections makes more sense. When we say, should we rely on informal reasoning or testing or, you know, any of these methods? And they say, oh, no, if we pay attention to simplicity above all, it will pay dividends. You can start seeing what they might mean. If we take simplicity to be fewer and fewer accidental things, more and more focused on what the problem itself has to say, you can justify that quote there. We see essential complexity as the complexity with which the team will have to be concerned, even in the ideal world. If there's any possible way that the team could produce a system that the users will consider correct without having to be concerned with a given type of complexity, then that complexity is not essential. And I have this in blue, but it's also in purple. And the reason it's blue is because we could just dismantle capitalism. We could kill the users, right? Like they can't call it incorrect if they're dead. If there's any possible way the team could produce a system that the users will consider correct, there's a lot of possible ways. I mean, they do say that they're going to put some caveats on the ideal world here. Like this problem could already be solved for the users. And if so, then you don't have to build anything, but we're going to, you know, put a, a limit on that. Right, even in our ideal world. Now, I'm going to pigeonhole on this because it's so much more fun to speculate on what they mean by possible here. So do they mean physically possible or do they mean metaphysically possible? <laughs> it's time for James Philosophy So I, I, I don't care that this is totally off topic, but they, they mentioned the real world and that not all possible ways are practical, but also in the real world, not all possibilities are possible. Sorry, in the real world, not all <laughs> possibilities are possible. <laughs> yes, yes, they're accidentally necessary to introduce terms that I brought up last time. Yeah, See? if you remember from last time, accidental necessity. Uh-huh. This is Jimmy Slowly Teaches You <laughs> Philosophy, the podcast. Emphasis right? on slowly. Uh, <laughs> okay so so for example superman flying around we can conceive of that we can think about it unlike maybe let's say a square circle like a squircle a circle that is also completely a square so it's like um like red and green at the same time you can't see red and green at the same time yeah 
Yeah, so like a square circle, it has four sides and it has no sides. Mm-hmm. Its area is pi r squared and it's, you know, that sort of contradiction in terms. Mm-hmm. Superman is not a contradiction in terms. Some guy flying around, leaping buildings is not a contradiction. We can imagine it. And yet it's physically impossible. Breaks the laws of physics as we know them. Maybe you could try to come up with something, but you can think of some sci-fi scenario that we know that is physically impossible. Maybe certain time travel things or whatever, even ignoring paradoxes. They might just be not possible physically. So the question that I have is just like, do they mean physically possible or do they mean like, even ignore the laws of physics, what's possible? And maybe that makes no difference whatsoever, but the, the reading is definitely like any conceivable way, if it's possible at all then it's not essential. And that actually follows more closely the philosophical definition of these ideas. If it's possible to get rid of it, then it can't be essential. So I will self-indulge just a little longer. In modern parlance in philosophy, they don't use essence and accident much at all. You might find some Thomists that do, but generally it's necessary and contingent are kind of like the same sorts of things. So some things are necessary and some things are contingent. They could have been otherwise. And it's just a contingent fact that they happen to be this way. So when we talk about bits and bytes and computers, we could have solved the same problems without any of those. And it's a contingent fact that we happen to solve it that way. But the other way of talking about it is not contingent. It's to use the word possible, necessary and possible. Now, of course, all things that are necessary are possible, but we're, you know, really talking about like merely possible, right? It's possible or necessary. Um, and so the way you define those is things that are necessary are true in all possible worlds, no matter which possible world you're in, it is still true in that world. And then things that are possible are true in some possible worlds. And this is actually, this is part of modal logic, which ends up actually feeding into programming. And if you look at how you reason about distributed systems in a formal way, you use modal logic. If you look at how you reason about temporal Uh, properties of programs. That's temporal logic, which is a form of modal logic. So these actually all tie up back into programming and actually have real applications. So here, this actually is really good tie-in with essence and accident because necessary and contingent, we're looking at what's true in all possible worlds, no matter what world they were in. They couldn't get rid of this problem, so it must be essential. It must be necessary. And then, of course, here they restrict themselves to a certain subset of the world where their users actually care about a problem and understand their problem, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, I had to make all that tie-in because this is stuff that really does have real applications in programming, um, not just in philosophy, although that's where it starts. I like that, A, the user probably just wants to get their email. Like, they just can't get through the login <laughs> page. They're trying to log in and get their email. But email's not essential. They just want to talk to their grandma. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, they should They should talk to their grandma more. Do they really need a grandma, though? <laughs> and I also like, in addition to that contrast, that you've made it such that my dismantling capitalism and killing the users is, like, reasonable and straightforward compared to <laughs> upending the laws of physics as we know them. Yes. I like that I'm I'm being practical by saying let's dismantle capitalism. <laughs> that's it's a good day when that's that's being practical. Uh, There's one other bit from this that I wanted to 
ask you about, and it's good that we're in the philosophy corner, and it's going back to the very first sentence of this section. Brooks defined difficulties of essence as those inherent to the nature of software and classified the rest as accidents. And I want to know what inherent means. Like, for instance, um, we got hung up last time on whether or not programming is inherently not spatial. Mm -hmm. And I think that I don't understand the meaning of inherent in as pure a sense as you do. And so I'd love to hear your definition of it in inherent. I'm glad we had philosophy corner first, so now I can rely on it. Okay, so when people talk today about essence, they usually define it in terms of these possible worlds. And I haven't technically defined what a possible world is, but I think everyone kind of has a good understanding. Like, it's like the wor- a way the world could be. And we're talking about like the whole universe, everything that exists, not just like Earth, right? Okay, so when they talk about essence, they say, Uh, The essence of a creature, of an object or whatever, is the properties it has in all worlds it exists. I am maybe essentially human because in all worlds I exist, I am human. I couldn't have been a frog. Because then you wouldn't have been you. Exactly, right? So inherent would mean like it is part of the essence of that thing. In no world could it lack that property, would be one way of understanding that this sort of, of language here, which I think like the accident and essence really tries to, is trying to give it to you, right? So it's saying like in all worlds, it has this property. For programming to be inherently spatial, there must be no world in which it is not spatial. Yes, it must be spatial in all worlds, yes. I'm going to very slowly convince you that that's true as you very slowly teach us philosophy. Well, if we go back to that discussion, there is a distinction that I will just go ahead and make. Programming and programs. Oh, God damn it. Because <laughs> that was actually what Brooks said, was that programs are not spatial. That's what I meant. <laughs> well, but that matters, and I just wanted to make okay. sure. Okay. Because programming... <sighs> might be inherently spatial because it's an activity done by human beings or creatures, you know, some, some intelligent creature or other, right? And so that might be, the activity might be spatial, but the program, the artifact itself, is not inherently spatial. That's, that's why I wanted to make that distinction. Do programs exist? <laughs> Are you just wanting to turn this into a philosophy podcast? No, I'm just trying to figure out, like, Like, how can something that exists in our world not be spatial? Okay, the question to answer this that I'm not going to go into, because I already uh, talked a little bit about this at the end of an episode that I totally did not think you were going to leave in the edit about Platonism. (laughs) But um, the, the answer depends on your belief on do numbers exist. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah, I got you. If you think that numbers exist, not it's not guaranteed that you think programs exist in the same way, but most likely, whatever way you think numbers do or do not exist, you'll probably conclude the same about programs. Cool. Right? So that, that would be my answer. If you think numbers don't exist, they're just thoughts in our head. Or you think numbers do exist, they're thoughts in our head, right? You could think the same, you could say the exact same thing. Uh, that would be the way in which programs exist. Now, if you say num- programs exist as thoughts in our head, 
Then you have this problem of program identity that I was pointing to before. Are we thinking of the same program? If you think they bit, it exist as bits on a computer, you have the same problem. This is the uh, question of universals, which has been brought up for since the Greeks, right? So, And so I may not be able to convince you that in all worlds programming is spatial, but maybe I have a hope of convincing you that in this world programming is spatial. That would be a much... Or programs are spatial. Ugh. Yes, yeah, there, yeah, is yeah. yes right. there is a difference. Yes, there is a difference. The artifact, right? Yes. Uh, I, I think you'd have a hard time, but I do agree that that's a much more modest claim. Yeah. So an example, it might be that uh, people... Uh, our minds, you know, our, our consciousness isn't necessarily material. In some worlds, there might be immaterial minds, but maybe in this world, they are all material, right? Or all made of carbon or whatever, right? Like that, that's the kind of thing that you could do that's a much more modest claim than that it is inherently or always or necessarily or things like that. Or that like all programs are sequential which they aren't, but yeah, yeah. I could I could assert that all programs are sequential and sequence implies difference in position of some sort, and that is a space. Or all swans are white, right? Yeah, not the ones that I spray paint. <laughs> There's no, I'm not being nice to animals this episode. So yes, uh, the ones that I spray paint are orange. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, like is that might be a, a true statement, but it is a necessary. Um, yeah, and then... There's bits in here. I will get rid of... I had some more philosophy hour things that I'll just ignore, like intentional identity versus existential identity and all that stuff. We'll get but, back to that someday, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we left off at the end of section three, it was talking about the the different ways that we can approach understanding and you know informal reasoning and testing. Now in section four, we're going to look at what are the causes of complexity and we, you know, jumping ahead to section six, learned about, okay, there's actually a specific framing of complexity here that they mean complexity is the stuff, essential complexity is the stuff that the user cares about. Accidental complexity is the stuff that the user does not care about. So there are several different causes of complexity. And the first one is complexity caused by state. And they begin this section, wow, I lost another highlight here, damn weird. Anyone who has ever telephoned a support desk for a software system and been told to try it again, or reload the document, or restart the program, or reboot your computer, or reinstall the program, or even reinstall the operating system and then the program, has direct experience of the problems that state causes for writing reliable, understandable software. And then a little bit later on, they have Another little throwback to this where they say the fact that that hidden internal mutable state is something you struggle with as you program and it will lead you to have issues is what happens that leads to this, this situation with the hypothetical support desk caller discussed at the beginning of this section. The proposed remedies are all attempts to force the system back into a good internal state. And I, I really dislike this example. Because they say, okay, the fact that you have this mutable state and it's going to cause you to get into these situations where your state is in an unexpected configuration and there's going to be bugs that result from that and the solution to it is to blow away your state and start from a clean state again. And they're talking about this especially in the context of testing, right? When you write your tests, you write your tests starting from an initial clean good state and then perform the test and then at the end of the test 
before the next one, you revert back to a clean initial state. This support desk color thing, like blowing away your state and getting back to a clean state is the kind of thing you do when your state is hidden and you don't have a good way of knowingly manipulating the state back to what you want it to be. And instead, you have to just wipe it all away. It's a very blunt instrument to use to move from you know a bad state to a good state. Whereas if the state were more visible, then you would be able to navigate that state space more deftly and be able to go from whatever state you happen to be in to the state you want to be in. And it's this hiding of the state. And they bring this up throughout this section. Every time they're talking about state, they're talking about it being hidden. And that's, you know, something they put in parentheticals over and over and over again as they talk about the mutability of the thing being the problem. And I would say that, you know, they don't address the fact that the hiding of it is what makes it especially pernicious. And that that struck me. So let me give an example that's not a computing example. It's a real-world example of the kind of error state can cause that's not, I don't think you, you could say is necessarily hidden. And yet, without state, it, you wouldn't have had this issue. Okay? Okay. You're in your car. You're pulling out of a spot that you parallel parked in. Mm-hmm. And you're, the car in front of you is a little too close for you to just be able to turn out. So what do you do? You put your car in reverse. You back up a little bit. And then you need to go, you need to turn the wheel and go forward. It's a busy road. You see your opening. You slam on the gas, and you haven't moved it back into drive. You're in reverse, and you slam in the car behind you. Yeah. There's a there's a reverse light on. Your, your reverse handle is wherever it needs to be. It is all visible state. There are easy ways to transition out of it, and yet you end up with this error, and it's because of the state of the vehicle at that moment. I would argue it's because of the ergonomics around which you manipulate that state. Sure, it's visible, and sure, there's a handle, but that doesn't mean that it's ergonomic. Okay, yes. So, if you had said that all the problems are unergonomic software, then you might be getting it good. But you said visibility. Yes, I'm specifically talking about the, the fact that the state is hidden is bad, and the answer isn't just to show the state. It's to show it in a way that is sufficiently ergonomic. But if we eliminated it altogether, we wouldn't need to come up with a way of showing it. So I'm not- And nobody has successfully eliminated it at all, which is why we have monads and why we have impure logic programming and we have all these other... Yeah, but this is the point, is that if we got rid of it, then we would not have this these sorts of problems. So I'm not suggesting this is the actual answer. Okay, yeah. but I'm just giving an example of if instead of you put your car into reverse and then you press the gas, you had to pull up on the gas pedal, right, with your foot, right? Like mm-hmm. you put it underneath and you pull up, then you couldn't cause this problem. Yeah. Because the car would never be changing states. Or the ways in which it was changing states would be abstracted from you. You're no longer required to maintain awareness of the state the state is hidden it may still be there yeah i think of modes and mutable state as almost synonyms yeah they're not quite but the sort of things we talk about with mode errors are very very similar to the problems we get in programming with mutable state and so i think this is a very good way to like relate these two and see the problem the the pedal is still 
in a mode, it's just a, a like a temporary or a transient mode. It's not in a mode that will persist when you're not operating it. Yeah, yeah. And some people say it's only a mode if it's not the locus of your attention. Mm-hmm. And so this is the locus of your attention. You're, you know, having to actively pull up with your foot or push down with your foot as opposed to, you know, what state the gear box is in, right? Makes it makes a difference on these things, right? You're not, that's not the locus of your attention. It's the road and your foot. It can become modal if you like accidentally drop a brick behind the pedal or something like that. And then you're driving backwards uncontrollably. (laughs) But you get, you get my point, right? Like, I think that this, this does, I, I don't, I don't see this as a bad example because it, it, if that computer did not have that sort of mutable state, even if it had the ability to easily see the transitions, now you're imposing on the user the ability to understand that state, understand the transitions in and out of that state, and that actually might be not good for the user. That actually might cause them to make more errors in other situations. And that's what I mean by ergonomics. Like, in the same way that I'm I'm not pretending that Tar Pit is advocating that we abolish all state full stop. It's advocating that we avoid state of certain kinds, especially as much as possible. And I'm also going to argue that we avoid hiding state, that if you can't eliminate it, make it visible in a way that is nice to work with. And if you can't make it nice to work with and you can't make it go away, then you're in trouble. And that it's, it's sort of like in addition to what Tar Pit is advocating for, I would say that something they didn't advocate for, but that all the pieces are here to put that together. That's something that I get out of this as value. And that that's another one of my, you know, summary questions along with what are the limits of simplicity that this paper didn't talk about is, are there any good takeaways from this paper that remain that people haven't taken away yet? And that's the one that I've got is that there's a whole bunch in here about how bad hidden in ergonomic state is. I don't know if that's the right <laughs> negation un, of ergonomic, un ergonomic, an ergonomic, non ergonomic. <laughs> I, I think, though, uh, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but I think, you yeah. know, if we get to their distinction between accidental state and essential state, which we'll get to at some point, the, the user on this call system, if restarting the computer fixes it, that was an example of accidental state right? The, the computer did not need to be in that state and it could have been rederived. It could have been whatever, right? And the fact that it persisted, even though like the fact that it con- continued, even though it shouldn't have shows that there was some sort of accidental state there. And so I think they would see, yes, if you had to introduce that accidental state, they might be very well for like making it visible and making it changeable, et cetera, because therefore all these other properties of like making it derivable and not persistent and et cetera. But I think they're giving this example again. I, I just think the ordering of this, this paper could have helped because like once you get to the end and you get accident and essence and how they define it, and then you get that applied to state, it all makes all of this come back and make sense. Yeah. And I've got one more from this section, um, impact of state on informal reasoning. There's nothing special about this sentence in particular. This is just um, an example of things from throughout the paper. The mental processes which are used to do this informal reasoning often revolve around a case-by-case mental simulation of behavior. 
if this variable is in this state, then this will happen, which is correct. Otherwise, that will happen, which is also correct. As the number of states and hence the number of possible scenarios that must be considered grows, the effectiveness of this mental approach buckles almost as quickly as testing. And this whole paragraph hinges on a word in the first sentence. The mental processes which are used to do this informal reasoning often revolve around a case-by-case -case mental simulation of behavior. Often, not always. And I mentioned earlier, and I said I wanted to double emphasize. Double emphasize. Said it two times. That when they were talking about testing and informal reasoning, these were but two examples of a larger possible set that they are pulling from. This paper is loaded with arguments that are made using examples that are pulled from a larger set, where they say, Sometimes it's like this, or often it's like this, or here's two of the whatever, whatever, whatever. And all of these ways of making their argument make the argument stateful, in that the argument is now dependent on whether or not you kind of agree with their example or whether you take the right thing out of their example or if you're willing to grant that, okay, this example is indicative of the larger range. They give us a couple of inputs to the argument, but they don't give us inputs that tell us things about all of the possible inputs to their argument. They just give us, you know, a couple to work with. And what this means is that the whole paper, the whole argumentation of the paper is stateful. And it is that stateful argumentation where I think this paper fails. And since it is that stateful argumentation that makes this paper fail, that in itself makes it clear that state is bad. It is this failing to do stateful argumentation that makes state clearly bad and therefore proves the point that this paper is trying to make. And that is why it is actually a good paper and not a bad paper. I rest my case. Uh... But what if they put all of those inputs into a stream and then they reduce over the stream? <laughs> yeah, if you if you if But it, would it be the same stream? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> if they walked into it twice. Yeah, uh, Epimenides <laughs> dipping Epimenides. dipping his buttocks into the stream is it the same stream as he dipped uh, his buttocks into earlier? Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I I think I think, you know, I'll just say I have run into this and I this is the part of this paper like I think it, it's better stated later, but that like rings true. And I do think this is the part that convinces a lot of people. I know it convinced me and it's one of the things that I loved about this paper was yes, it's not a a buttoned up perfect argument, but I find myself in systems that are full of mutable states doing exactly that. And it's, it's so hard for me to reason that way. I suck at it. Um, it's so hard for me to think that way <laughs> because I can't visualize things. And I, I uh, oftentimes it relies on holding in my head a bunch of different scenarios and think switching between them. Right. And uh, paper can help with this, right? Like you can sit down and write out like, okay, here's this set, here's this state, here's these things and trying to go through. And this is what like my, you know, intense whiteboarding thinking sessions often are, are trying to think of all these scenarios. But I did find 
in my career, when I moved to software that didn't work that way, right? Like closure, right? I had I, I had to think in that way less often. Now, does that mean my my productivity was 10x and all my problems were all solved? No, but there's a certain way of thinking that I never had to do again. And I found over and over again, I would make fewer mistakes because I was better at the other kind of thinking. And so I think this is gonna be person relative, right? I've met people who are so good at thinking in this way. And, and like, as you do it longer, you use, I mean, if you compare like me to like a absolute beginner in programming, they're often not as good at thinking that way as I am just because I've done it longer, even though I don't have a natural tendency towards it. Right. And I can kind of almost shortcut a bunch of steps that they have to do because they have to think about things that I can just throw out out of hand or I'm like, oh, this is similar to that problem, whatever. Right. But I do think, yes, it's not. I think this is something I see over and over again in these papers that I actually love is the most convincing part is the worst argument. And, and I actually love that, right? We can point out the flaws of the argument as an argument, and yet the intu intuition is there. And it's just their framing that makes it implausible. If they just said, here's an intuition pump, or here's something to get you thinking about why we might care about this, here's an example, here's a thought experiment, it becomes much better, right? And so, yeah, I, I hate this kind of reasoning. I find it very annoying to do. And the more and more I manufacture my system so I never have to do it, the more and more I enjoy them. The kind of reasoning being like having to explicitly think through like case by case as you're reading this paper, like, okay, but in this example, they've set up this specific caveat. So I have to ignore all of these other scenarios and uh -huh. just consider the scenario they're talking about in order to understand yeah. the point they're making that kind of, you know, case based situational reasoning. Yeah. I do think that this is actually, uh, an important, uh, critique of like writing. Cause I do think sometimes people think their argument is stronger than it is because they've set up a certain state and assumptions in a paper that they don't realize their readers aren't going to consistently hold. And I'm, I'm, I'm half joking, but I also did find that like reading this paper, a lot of the arguments rest on whether or not you kind of get the right takeaway from the examples that they give. And when you go back to the way they set up the argument, if you disagree with the selection of their examples, it kind of invalidates the premise on which all of their argumentation rests and you get to the end of it and it's like, well, I, I don't actually agree with your conclusion because you, you picked a bad example initially and something about your conclusion depends on that specific example you picked, not the, the broader field from which that example was drawn. Yeah. So in section four, we had, we kind of skipped over, but we had impact of state on testing, impact of state on informal reasoning, complexity caused by control. Yeah. So the, like the two, the two big ways that complexity are caused are by state and by control. And state is state. We don't need to explain it. Control is very specifically the order of things happening. Yeah, control and I had flow. to go and look this up. Yeah. And I, I was like, um, this is just a uh, probably an aspect of the history of programming and its origin in mathematics or something like that that I'm not as comfortable with. Um, but it's branching is not what is meant by control in this sense. When they talk about branching, it's a very specific like 
um, complementary example, but when they say control, they very specifically are referring to the order in which things happen. And so branching is an element of that, but it's also about like this statement executes first, then that statement, then this other statement. And in most languages, the order you write the statements is the order they execute. That's why they talk about prologue and some other systems where you can write the statements in any order and they are all independent. And you know that they are going to be executed independently when you write them. So you write them to not have interdependencies or you explicitly call out those interdependencies. And that that is what is meant by control in this context, not like branching and if statements and that sort of thing, which are sometimes referred to as control constructs. Yeah. And it's it's broader than that. And, and you can think about this like, uh, you know, kind of more practically... If you have if you have a program and you wanted to say something like this, like create an order unless the order has these invalid conditions, right? In your code, you'd have to make sure that you did the invalid check before you ran this statement. You as the programmer need to think about and what which order is my code going to do? It might be right then I call a function that checks all that properties. I get the return value when I do it, or I set a flag up here, and all my checks that would ever touch that flag need to run before I create the order. In a system where control didn't matter, you could just make that statement, make an order unless there's anything invalid, and then you could make statements about what makes something invalid anywhere else. And then you could run the program and it would continue to run it into, until all the possible you know things have happened, all the effects have happened. And then, and only then, when it knew for a fact that it wasn't invalid, would it make the order, right? And you would never have to think about that ordering. And this, there's some interesting questions about like, uh, I'll read here, like basic control, such as branching, but as opposed to sequencing, Concurrency is normally specified explicitly in most languages. So they're saying branching is explicit, concurrency is normally explicit, but sequencing is implicit. I, I, I find that interesting to think about just in general, but also in a kind of a future of coding kind of frame where it's like, what is it that makes something explicit or implicit within a programming, within a programming language, what have you? how fuzzy are those boundaries and how do you move those boundaries around? So like, you know, sequencing, arguably implicit because it's like you write your, you know, statements on each line and each line, you kind of execute them in order, but within each line, it's like a little bit unpredictable, the order that's going to happen. Like you have to know order of operations. You have to know, okay, uh, does and, um, bind more tightly than or, you know, which mm -hmm. one of these is is going to happen first, that kind of thing. There's like a, a lot of implicit ordering within the code that you write unless you're, you know, forcing it to be explicit by using parentheses or what have you. And then there's some argument as to whether concurrency is explicit or implicit, like you could use, you know, mutices or something like that to guarantee that something is going to happen before some other thing or CSP or something like that. Um, I just find it interesting to think about how implicit or explicit these things are, because to me, that is just another instance of visibility versus invisibility, where making something explicit is in a sense making it more visible and making it implicit is in a sense making it less visible. And it makes me think that 
you know, concurrency is tricky, especially tricky to test because the way that you try to test it is usually by forcing it to not be concurrent by, or at least not be non-deterministic, forcing it to execute in a predetermined order. And it's the non-determinism that makes it tricky. But to me, non-determinism is just like another kind of invisibility. And so that's just an area of this paper that, that gave me a lot to think about, about, um, about that visibility, invisibility frame and what we could do in our future of coding explorations. Yeah, I think a lot of programming style hinges on explicit versus implicit and what things we consider when and where, right? And I, I found that a lot of disagreements are really about that question. Like just practical disagreements we have on code style are like, I like these things to be explicit and I like these things to be implicit. Right, you can see that with like composition versus inheritance, and uh, you know, should you pass a argument to a function or rely on some global variable or blah 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 blah. Right, there's all these things that are all about that. So I do think that's a an interesting variable to play with, um, and I think you know, like Zig, for example, is an interesting. I think the most interesting choice Zig did is all allocations are explicit, even including passing which allocator you will use. Whereas every other language I can really think of makes allocation, even if it's explicit in like C, malloc is this implicit thing that just exists everywhere, right? I can just malloc anywhere. Whereas Zig said, no, this whole thing about allocation is going to be totally explicit. You have to pass an allocator if you want to allocate. And that is such an interesting choice for a language. And I wonder if we can do more things like that, right? More things where we play with the explicitness of these things. That's actually a, a great reference because we are just looking right now at section 4.2, which is complexity caused by control. Section 4.3 is complexity caused by code volume. I have nothing there, but we can come back to it if you do. But the following section, section 4.4, other causes of complexity, it lists some other examples like duplicated code, dead code, unnecessary abstraction, missed abstraction, poor modularity, poor documentation. And it says that these other causes come down to the following three interrelated principles. Principle number one, complexity breeds complexity. Principle number two, simplicity is hard. And principle number three, power corrupts. And I'm just going to talk about power corrupts for a second. We can jump around. And, uh, and the authors say, what we mean by this, power corrupts, is that in the absence of language-enforced guarantees, i.e. restrictions on the power of the language, mistakes and abuses will happen. This is the reason that garbage collection is good. The power of manual memory management is removed. And I, I wanted to tie to that because Zig requiring you to specify which allocator you're using, that's interesting because this thought that I had about garbage collection is that the reason that manual memory management is bad, in my read, is that it's usually not visualized. And you can solve that problem by taking manually mem manual memory management away, or you could solve it by better visualizing memory. And I think this thing that Zig does of requiring you to use a specific allocator and saying, you know, which allocator are you using? Not just some global, invisible background 
Malik that just always exists and is hiding behind the scenes, but foregrounding that and saying, you need to have a more direct, immediate relationship with your allocator is one way of making it more visual. And GC is the blunt instrument that I kind of referred to earlier when talking about, you know, do you just obliterate state or do you make state more visible and more ergonomic to navigate through? This is another example. Do you just obliterate memory management or do you make memory management more visible and hopefully ergonomic to wield? It's it's less about dealing with power by saying, I refuse power, and instead dealing with power by making that power less likely to slip out of your grasp and, and cause wounds and amputations and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think considering the constraints we put on users and how much power we give them, how much we take away, it has huge trade-offs. And I don't think there's one easy answer here. No. It's a little too easy to think that the the least amount of power is the most useful thing or that we can even have this sort of easy notion of powerful or not, right? Like, yes, you might think of like, memory management is more powerful than garbage collected languages. But I don't know. That feels a little feels a little weird to me, right? Yeah, there's a value judgment about what power means. Yeah, like there's certain things I'm able to do easily in garbage collected languages that I can get away with and that cause me problems that I, they wouldn't in a manual memory allocated language. Uh, that just don't happen. Like, so for example, I can just sit in a tight loop and allocate all over the place and never realize I'm allocating. Right. And I could leak that memory and, you know, not realize I'm doing it because like, I didn't even know of the concept of allocation. I think of early on in my programming career, I had no idea that allocation was a thing, right? I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm making objects. But like if you would use the word, oh, you're allocating memory and the garbage collector is going to have to deal with it. That's why your program's so slow. I'd be like, wait, what? The garbage collector? The al like I wouldn't know what these things were, right? And so yes, there is, if you tried it, you could probably give some technical definition or something. But if we're, if we're talking practically here, it is, I think, two sides of the same coin, thinking of one thing as restricting power, but it also can provide other powers, Right. And yes, that's why I think the Zig trade-off is so interesting because it is a power and a restriction at the same time. You're given the ability to do manual memory management so that you can do some of these unsafe things you might not be able to do in a garbage-collected language, but also you're restricting all functions that aren't past an allocator to not allocate. That's the fascinating trade-off here. And that is one that, it's a trade-off, it's a, it's a, like, restricting what you're able to do makes it easy to see what you're not doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're able to do it, you know, willy-nilly, then you can't see whether it's happening or not. Yeah, you use a library in Zig that doesn't get past an allocator, it doesn't allocate. Yeah. Right? In, in, in any other language I can think of, how do you get those guarantees? It's not an obvious answer, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think, okay, so my opinion on a lot of this... Like we, we've gone, we've summarized some of this and some of this is of course been floating out here. We've gotten pretty far in this paper and, but we're not 
I mean, if we actually wanted to comprehensively cover this paper, we would have to go for a few more hours, right? And we already said we're only going to really cover the first half, but there's still a ton more in here, right? I, I just, I guess I don't know how you want to. I think if we try to just continue down this list. I have almost nothing highlighted from here on. <laughs> Uh, Not to say nothing, but it's mostly like, like I've got um, <clears throat> the one advantage that all these impure non-von Neumann, non-von Neumann derived languages can claim. And I find non-von Neumann funny <laughs> and hard to say. Non-von Neumann. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's John von Neumann, but these non-von Neumanns, yeah. <laughs> you gotta watch out for them. Uh, that's like literally the kind of stuff that I've highlighted from here on out. I, I think it's, it's already made most of its interesting claims and what follows is it pivots from talking about the problem to talking about existing solutions and why they don't work and then talking about proposing a new solution um i think we should summarize what that solution is we don't need to dive into all the details of it but i think we need to put that flavor out there to do the paper justice and then concluding thoughts if we want to revisit this paper later, which I know your answer is probably no, yeah. but if we want to revisit this paper, I think that would be a good section to cover. But I, I think that we've covered a lot of what this paper is about, which is state causes lots of problems and the elimination of state is crucial for reducing complexity. And then now we're getting into how do you practically eliminate state in a way that you can build a system that has all the properties that you want of a real practical system and yet none of the downsides of these big complex things. Mm -hmm. And I had a bunch of little, there's a bunch of things I had highlighted like hot takes, like they don't like monads and they make a bad, they say that all OOP relies on state, which isn't true and things like that. Yeah. Their takes on OOP are trash. Like I, I have no problem saying that. Like they're, their interpretation of what OOP is is very narrow, and it's it's a great example of that sort of stateful argumentation that I was complaining about, where it's like they pick OOP as the way to talk about imperative programming <laughs> and then don't really talk about the imperative aspects of OOP. They talk about the OOP-iness of it, and then at the end go, and that's why imperative programming is bad, which, you know, doesn't need to be the case. You can have OO without being imperative. Yeah, and you can have OO without state. There's a great paper. Uh, it's like on data abstraction revisited by William Cook. That mm, mm-hmm. maybe we should cover at some point. I don't know. It might not be co- totally future of coding relevant, but it's a really good paper. Uh, and it it kind of offers a different definition of object oriented programming, and it eliminates state from it completely. It is an immutable system. It's fascinating. Such cool. Yeah. Such cool stuff. So. Yeah, I think I think that they clearly don't like to operate joint programming, and their answer is functional relational programming. And I'll give you have just like the the little elevator pitch of this idea. So we know that state is bad, and the elimination of state is good. What we need to do is we need to now limit ourselves as much as possible and focus on the essential state. Now, remember, essential is what matters to the users. So we need to take what matters to the users, what we can't derive from anything else, right? 
So for example, if a user clicks buttons, they we might be able to store those clicks of buttons, but the count would be der a derivable feature of those buttons or the frequency or whatever, right? Any other properties of those button clicks. That's accidental state that we might need to store only for practical purposes, but the essential state of they clicked this, we, we need to store that. And we're going to combine this like functional programming, minimal state with relational programming, which you, we usually think of like SQL, but they really mean like the relational algebra. And it, that's going to be our model for data. So all we're going to have is functions and relations between data items, also known as go back to our discussion on Brooks, where we talked about algorithms dropping out, et cetera, right? This is the, the model of what the essence of programming is as much as we can practically get at it, right? Now, they admit that, like, they don't really meet their ideal world. Of course, they're talking about functions, and they're talking about relations, and these are things that users aren't thinking about. But we've accepted some constraints of we're building a software system. We have to work with software practically. And they even say, like, this FRP system does not exist. There's no off-the-shelf thing you can do. They didn't even build it. Yeah, we didn't build it. There might not ever be an off-the-shelf. Maybe you always have to build this yourself. Maybe you can find some ways of plugging into it. But this is the idea. You have a purely functional little bit of the program. You have your relational data. These things hook up. And that's the whole system. There's no imperative shell around this. There is, though. They have this like little diagram of like the core of the system is the essential state, and it refers to nothing else. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the essential logic, which refers to the essential state and nothing else. And then there's the accidental state and control, which is a little bit imperative in their framing uh, of it, yeah. that refers to both the essential logic and the essential state. And it's sort of like the accidental state and control is the stuff that you'd write imperatively or however to get performance uh, hints into the runtime that's running this system so that it doesn't do something pathologically dumb when you just give it state and pure logic. Yes, you know, you're absolutely right. There is eventually, if you need it, yes. and only if you need it, can you add some accidental stuff. And the main yeah. reason you're going to need it is performance. And that in an ideal world where performance was no issue, you would need none of this. Yes, exactly. And when you, I think there's also kind of guidance about when you add this accidental stuff, it should have certain properties. Like if it doesn't need to persist and it could be re-derived or persist in a lossy way, you know, a way that you could wipe it out and then re-derive it later, do that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, try to make it as pure as possible. So it's a data-defined thing or something like that rather than like, Oh, and now we just, and it has to be totally separate, right? Yeah, it's isolated from the essential logic and state. They can't refer to it. Yes, yeah. There, there's a one-wayness to this, right? So I might make a little data-defined language for my control flow diagram, and then it might call some of my pure functions that do things, but my pure functions can't know that they're being called. They can't reach in. And if they have to have any of that, it's got to be supplied to them and, you know, all of that. I have worked on 
so many systems that were developed this way. And, and I will say, I think the reality, I know this is like jumping ahead to conclusions of what I think of the system, but I'm going to. The reality of these systems are they are totally fine as long as you ignore conformity. The one element of Brooks that kind of got thrown out out of this whole discussion, when you have to make this system talk in a complicated way to the outside world, and that outside world has a bunch of requirements on how it wants to be talked to, oh my gosh, is this a pain. Your system ends up becoming 90% translation between what the outside world wants to say and what you want to say. Now, there's also performance issues, and I've worked on systems where I found I took something that took 30 seconds and turned it into 0.1 milliseconds just by not using the fancier things that had been built up, a data log database with blah, 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 blah. Right, I've, I've done that. I replaced the same number of lines of code, just didn't do the data log query. Instead, did some, you know, purely functional, but some normal logic, right? Not uh, a query onto the relational model. Like, not all data fits in this relational model if you have to communicate to the outside world. Taking structured data, turning it into relations, and then turning it back into structured data is not fun. One of the criticisms that I read of this part of the paper when I was doing some background reading was that one of the things that seems to be lacking in this design that the authors were aware of and just kind of brushed under the rug is that it lacks a theory of change for the essential state. That there's not enough attention given to the fact that that essential state needs to be updated and that those updates make that essential state mutable and how you ought to grapple with that within this framework that is otherwise about being very immutable at the core. And that's something that I think Hickey did a better job of in his, you know, absorbing and and reworking the thoughts from this paper is that he's always come forward with a, a theory of process or a theory of change or a theory of how systems, you know, need to be not just state, you know, as a pure immutable abstract thing, but a succession of states and how you manage the succession over time is of key importance. And so I, I hear a little bit of that maybe in what you're saying as well. Like when you conform to the outside world, one of the things that the outside world expects is that things are changing and that you're going to get new data coming in and you're going to have to incorporate that. Um, and another area where I think maybe this proposal fails a little bit is the other kind of theory of change, which is like uh, how you grow and evolve these systems over time. I don't see in here a lot of thinking about, once again, the ergonomics of what it's like to work within this kind of a structure and how... One of the nice things about imperative mutable systems is that they're really easy to 
evolve and grow so easy, in fact, that it's easy to end up with a bowl of mud and it's easy to like go off the rails and it's easy to move from a, a correct state into an incorrect state. Like they don't do enough to help you avoid bad kinds of changes because they're all about being easy to change. If you want to go, you know, add some new functionality that needs some data that's over there, you just go grab the data. You don't have to like do the thing that they talk about in functional programming earlier in this paper where they say, well, one way that functional programming can handle this is by making a big wad of state and then passing it into every function and have that function change whatever part of the giant ball of state that it needs to and then return that giant ball of state. And they reject that as a good idea. Yeah. Although I disagree. I think it's a great idea. But I, I totally agree with you. And I just take it one step further that they have identified this interesting essence of the problem, but the problem itself is what changes. Mm-hmm. And most software systems in my, that I've worked in that are overly complex to the point where no one can understand them, part of the reason is the problem they're trying to solve has changed. And so what was essential before is no longer, not because it it's no longer essential to the original problem, but the problem itself has changed. And so it's not essential to the software system, even if it's essential to the problem. Because now that software system solves a new problem, or it doesn't solve that old problem anymore at all. It doesn't need to. That problem is obsolete. Or there's it has to solve this problem in addition to those old problems. And when do you divide up? When do you decide that two problems are distinctly different, right? And how do you make sure that they don't interconnect in a weird way? These are all the things that I think actually make these systems hard. And the more you boil down to the essence of the problem, the harder it is to shift to other problems. I think a really easy example that I kept thinking of is I know many, many kinds of systems where performance is essential, Mm -hmm. where if you are building a software program with a framework that was designed assuming an ideal world where performance does not factor, Mm -hmm. and then you can sprinkle on a little bit of performance at the end, which they specifically say, they specifically argue somewhere in here that it's easier to make a simple system fast than it is to make a fast system simple. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that. I don't think that that's true. I agree. Um, But like if you if you have this framework that leads you to build a simple system that attacks a single problem and that problem is what is essential and you've built that thing around it, it's very, very easy to find yourself in a position where the system that you've built has kind of crystallized around that problem, like Jimmy's saying, and that suddenly the problem is not, oh, you know, or the, or the issue is not, oh, the problem has changed, but your system is too slow and now it needs to go fast and that has moved from being inessential to being essential. Yeah. And now it's like, what do you do? the entire framework upon which you've built this solution is now part of the problem. Or, and I've seen this happen specifically with systems built around this, you do build this. You solve the problem in a very slow way, Mm -hmm. and that causes other upstream problems that now need to be solved only because your system is not fast enough. And if it were just... 10x, 100x faster, that would be totally achievable had you not taken this approach, you wouldn't need to solve those upstream problems. Because those upstream problems only happen because you can't do something at scale here. So I I do want to say, 
I, I think there are lots of critiques here, and there I think there have to be lots of critiques here because this is offering a silver bullet, right? And like explicitly so. Like it doesn't technically say it's gonna give 10x. They, I don't think they ever make that claim in here, but they they do think it's an answer to Brooks' problem. And so that kind of implies that it's going to, you know, solve these problems. They at least think it's going to reduce, you know, why is it hard to make software? Well, it won't be now if you follow this. And so I think it's good for people to make ambitious claims, and they do try to hedge a bunch on on these sorts of things and not make too bold of claims. I, I think pointing out the flaws is not to say that this paper's bad or wrong or you shouldn't read it or you shouldn't learn from it. Which it is, and which you should, and which you can't, so don't. Uh, I think this has been the most, um, I, if I, I, it's not my favorite paper, but it's probably been the most influential in my career. And it brought me to a place where it taught me so much by just taking this approach. There's a certain asceticism to it that is really beneficial, if you come away as a zealot about this paper and think that all systems that don't follow it, maybe that's not the best thing, but maybe you needed that to develop, right? But what I will say is if you take this frame and you apply it and you see how far it goes, you end up on the other side learning a lot about software. And that's what I think is so wonderful about this paper. And just to follow up with what you said earlier, they do actually say the silver bullet. I'll read the very last couple sentences from the paper. So what is the way out of the tar pit? What is the silver bullet? It may not be FRP, but we believe there can be no doubt that it is simplicity. Oh yeah, I have that highlighted in green. I should have remembered. Because <laughs> of course, simplicity is exactly the kind of silver bullet Brooks was looking for. That's exactly <laughs> what he was after. And and that's what's so, that's why I love. That's what's so galling about this paper. Well, that's what was so good about reading this paper right afterwards. That's why I made yeah. this requirement, right? Is because having read them both and then having read the out of the tar pit more and remembered more of it and then going back and reading Brooks, I saw how far apart they were. Mm-hmm. These couldn't be more far apart, even though they're supposed to be about the same topic, right? And I think there's a lot in here that we didn't get into, like essential state and essential logic and external state and control and all of these like little details here that are really interesting to think about. And when you find yourself practically in your program, deriving state, like realizing that you might want to treat it differently is a really good little trick and technique for making your program better. And so, yeah, I think I'm... I would be more for people putting out bold visions that are wrong than people making lukewarm takes that are right. Now I don't know which bucket I fall into with my whole, it's all visibility, invisibility. <laughs> is that a bold take that is wrong or is it a lukewarm take that is right? I don't like either of these options. <laughs> they both suck. Uh, okay, that has a higher chance of being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm definitely, I'm definitely with you in all things in my life. When it comes to assessing the work of other people, one of my top criteria is how much risk are you taking? Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to, you know, art and music and film and things like that. One of the things I value most is somebody who took a swing and a miss, right? Like I'd love to see, 
you know, some established top 40 act come back with an experimental noise music album <laughs> and have it be critically panned and a commercial disaster and that sort of thing. Because to me, that is a sign that they thought, here's an opportunity for us to do something different. And I, I really cherish that. I cherish the mistakes that people make on their path exploring the space rather than just finding something that works and entrenching themselves in it. And I think that might be what bugs me about all of this parroting of, you know, the ease of reasoning about things that has come up over the past decade and the, and the emphasis on a certain interpretation of what Rich Hickey said kind of based on this paper where it's all about, you know, oh, this particular aesthetic choice we made is justified because it minimizes complexity. And I just, there's a, a certain amount of cargo culting there that, that really bothers me in the same way that uh, it really bothered me, like all the copycat acts that came out after, you know, Animal Collective, one of my favorite bands from the 2000s. They they came out with a style of popular music that was very different from what everyone else was doing. And each new album they put out was markedly different in its genre and instrumentation and songwriting style and all of that. And each new album they brought out, there was a wave of copycat acts that sounded exactly like that new album. And... <laughs> that continued album after album after album for about a decade. And that that sort of thing I don't like. I don't like the thoughtless repetition or the regurgitation of ideas. And I, I appreciate this paper in the little nooks and crannies of ideas that it almost hits upon that are almost valuable, like the way it almost could be used to support visibility as an important criteria of understandability, but it just like walks right past that. So arguably, I see the good in the, the Darth Vader of this paper. <laughs> oh, yeah. In my notes, oh. conclusion, Tar Pit is a great paper. It's so full of bad arguments that you end up generating a ton of insight by disagreeing with it. Every time you read it, you'll find new ways that it's wrong, which pushes you to better understand programming. It's a golden goose. Emphasis on goose. 